But the reality is, is that the left never wants to take any kind of uh, responsibility for their role in starting, facilitating, continuing some of these just, you know, words. I mean, they, they use all of the same words and traits and then say, but he started it. Or, I mean, it's crazy. My guest today is Sean Spicer. Spicer grew up in Rhode Island in a working class family. The closest he ever got to the White House was standing outside the gates as a tourist. So it was a pretty surreal event when President Trump called him at the end of December 2015 and asked him to be press secretary and White House communications director. After leaving the White House, Spicer has written two books and now hosts a news talk show, Spicer and Company, on Newsmax TV. I recently sat down with Sean and asked him how a working class kid without any contacts or connections gets into politics and becomes press secretary. I also asked him what he learned about Donald J. Trump on a personal level that most people would have no idea about. All right, Sean, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. So you bet, how does a kid from Rhode Island, and I didn't know you grew up, you you were born in New York, right? You're really a New Yorker by, by uh, birth. Uh, don't go there, man. You know, I'm a Red Sox right. and Patriots fan. I, I was born in a hospital there, and then All they got right, me they out. They got you out quick. So you couldn't be a Met fan or a Yankee fan, but you went right to Boston. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll give you that. So how does a kid growing up in Rhode Island get to work for the most powerful person in the world? Uh, tell, tell me about that. You, so when you, when you were growing up in Rhode Island, did you say my aspirations are to be the press secretary and work, from the, work in the White House? No, my, my aspirations had nothing to do with politics either. I mean, I... I, uh, my dad sold boats for a living, um, and I don't know, I kind of thought maybe I'd be a lawyer or in sales of some sort, and um, and like so many things, it was a trial and error period. I went, we didn't grow up with a lot of money, and so one of the teachers in high school had taken a real interest in me, and it was the late 1980s, and he had suggested that, hey, if I really took an interest in uh, Japanese language and maybe got a minor in economics, that I could really write my own ticket um, because Japan was on the ascent. And so I thought, okay, I, I want to make a lot of money. I want to be able to provide for myself and do better. And I went to college and for two semesters, I took intensive Japanese language and, uh, I was horrible at it. <laughs> I mean, literally not just was I horrible at it, but, uh, you know, I got called into the Dean's office and was told like, I don't know what your translation mode is, but a D in English is a D in Japan, Japanese. And you, it doesn't look like you're doing too well with this major. So I, um, I had taken a government course and I kind of found it really interesting. I, I always talk about it as like my political awakening. I hadn't been really involved in politics. I hadn't really thought a lot about politics, but like so many like professors, the guy was really liberal. And I started to question myself, like, I'm not really sure that I agree that that's the role of government. I don't know that, um, you know, what he's talking about makes sense. And so I started to volunteer. I volunteered in the Connecticut State Leg Legislature. I drove to Hartford a couple times a week. I um, I volunteered on a local campaign. And then, I mean, the, the cliff note version is, I like to say that it was like joining the minor leagues. Like you kind of, you just keep playing the game, hoping to get called up to the pros. And I worked for congressmen and campaigns from Pennsylvania, New Jersey to Florida. And, um, and, and just kind of kept working my way up the ladder. And then I was actually mobilized in the Navy in 20, 2009, spent 18 months on active duty. And when I was getting off, I really wanted to go do the corporate thing. 
Um, my wife and I were really convinced that this was a chance to start a family. And um, I, you know, again, the, the quick version is I got a call to meet with the new chairman of the RNC, Ryan Sprevis, and they were looking to put a team together for him. Uh, we hit it off and two years became four years, four years became six. And when the Trump campaign was happening, um, there weren't a lot of people that wanted to be associated with it, to put it mildly. And I had always been of the philosophy that when the voters pick a nominee, uh, that our job was to support that nominee full-throated. And I did. And I developed a good relationship with then Mr. Trump. What, what, year, what year was that? And um, 2015 in so 2016. You were, you were part of the RNC establishment, and, right? So. Yeah. So you were part and parcel yeah. of that. And the RNC at, the, at that point, I remember it definitely when he first started, was not a fan of Donald Trump. They, they, well, it wasn't that the, the, see, the RNC is, is a building. It's, a, it's like a league, I said. You know, the, and so there were people in it that were clearly not fans of his. Uh, we, had a, we had a bunch of people that resigned and left. Um, and then there were people well, who why were did they resign? Why did they resign and um, leave? What, 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 what pissed them off so much? Um, I think... Well, it's the same reason that you have like sort of never Trumpers now and people part of the Lincoln Project. I think they they have some issue mostly stylistically with Trump. Um, and then you you also had people like me that are institutionalists that believe that this is what the RNC is for, is for the voters and uh, the grassroots voters uh, within our party to choose a nominee. And then you kind of work as hard as you can to get that person elected. Um but yeah, you had a range of folks. Um, and, and so, I, I mean, I think you had a lot of folks that literally were like massive Trump fans. You had people that couldn't stand the guy. And then you had a lot of well, people what did in the you, Why'd you gravitate to him? What, what do you like? What'd you like about him that you said, you know, this guy, he could be president? Because in the beginning, it did not look good for him. No. And, and like, look, I want to remind you that like, it wasn't that I gravitated towards him per, at that time. I mean, my job was to say whoever our voters, because I, I've, I believed in neutrality, that I believe that the job wasn't for Washington to pick a nominee or to tip the scale. It was for voters to decide who it was, and then it was our job to support them. Once he became the nominee, um, and I got to know him more, I, I mean, I appreciated the disruptive style that he had. I love the idea that he doesn't take, you know, that's the way it was supposed to be as an answer, um, or it's always been this way. I mean, to me, that's part of the problem is that these guys get stuck in this and it's on both sides. So it's at both parties where they get stuck in this mentality, like a bunch of bureaucrats telling, well, you know, you're only supposed to do it this way. That's always how it's been done. And you go, Oh, okay. I mean, and I think that that's a disservice to the American people. You look at what the president's done on operation warp speed. We're about to bring two vaccines to market, both Moderna and Pfizer. And it's because people kicked down barriers and said, you know, we're not, we're going to do, we're going to get something done in the interest of the American people and not let, you know, a bunch of mid-level bureaucrats slow the process down. Growing up, is that the type of kid you were? Um, no, I mean, I always appreciated it. Yeah. I mean, I sort of, but I don't, I mean, I was, I was, I, I mean, I think I'm fairly a rule follower, but I always like, I, I will tell you, I, I served 20, almost 22 years in the Navy. And I can't tell you how, you know, there's a reason that some things are bureaucratic to prevent certain things from occurring, but then it's also prevents a lot of good from occurring and a lot of efficiency and effectiveness. When did you jump into the, if you got your master's, I think from the Naval War College or so, uh, you, so when did you, you joined the Navy when? When I was 29 years old, 
Uh, we'd had a family history and my great grandfather uh, received the Medal of Honor. I had always wanted to do something when I was in my uh, teenagers and twenties. And I always had like, you know, making money to get, you know, to pay for things. I mean, I, that's how I grew up. If you want something, if you want to get by, you got to, you know, and at that time they didn't have the programs that they do now in the military. So, um, it just didn't work the way it does now. And, um, when I was in my mid to late twenties, a friend of mine had said, Hey, you know, I've always, I know you always had an interest in doing this. There's this program that you can get involved in and da, 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 da. And I did it. And, uh, at 29 years old, got really? my commission. So, so you, you leave, you don't leave you, you, really size up the situation. You're a straightforward guy. You see, Donald Trump is good for the party, good for the country. You you go onto that bandwagon, and, and how do you get into your position? How does he hire you to be press secretary? Yeah, so that's a, it's an interesting question because I we won, and you know, there's a lot of, I mean, when you run a campaign, whether you're running for like student council or for president, you never run thinking I'm going to lose no matter what they can tell you, you know, the odds are one in a million, but you go, you know, somehow I'm going to be that one out of a million. So despite the New York times and everybody else, we actually thought we had a path to victory. Um, so he wins. And to be blunt, there weren't a lot of people that a thought we could win B had been part of the ride. And so there was only a small group of folks around him that knew him that he trusted and then been part of the experience. And so it, it, I, I'd love to say that there was this um, competition of a thousand people and I won out. But the reality was, is that, you know, when we won, there was this, okay, let's start putting together the transition plans. And I had served in the Bush White House. And I, you know, so I started to put together all these plans. And um, sure enough, um, you know, you, at some point, that's, you know, you, you, you benefit from being one of the few people, right. That, that at least understands the job has the confidence of the, of the person. And so that was it. And then on December 21st, 2016, he called me right at lunchtime and said, okay, let's so do what this. What'd you think? Like, holy smokes, uh, I made it. Yeah. It was probably the most surreal experience of my life um, because we had given him these org charts, these like, here's how we suggest that the, you know, the press and the communications office should be laid out. And he had had them for, I don't know, two weeks and hadn't really heard back much of anything. So I kept thinking like, okay, well, what's the deal here? Like, you know, is this going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Is it going to get modified? And sure enough, he just calls and says, okay, let's do it. Um, and I don't think I fully appreciated how transformational that moment was going to be. So, you know, his his style from what we see on the outside is considered chaotic, impulsive. Uh, you had a front row seat to that. Is that, are we missing it? Is there, is there, is there rhyme to the reason of the way he rules and the way he has his organization and his people going in and out? No, that's pretty accurate. But, you know, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of focus on the style as opposed to the results. And what I always think is interesting is that when people talk about the turnover and all that, I'll go, okay, well, what, what is that affecting? Right. Cause that's the, that's sort of what they're driving at by saying, well, there's all these people turning over. The question you have to ask yourself is so what, right? So you can go to an organization where everybody's been there 20 years 
Does that mean that they're getting things done? Does that mean that they're effective? Um, or maybe it's just that it's a good place to work or, you know, or they pay well, I don't know. But conversely, you know, if there's turnover, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, why is that? And I think in Trump's case, it was for a lot of reasons. One, he was new. Two, he's not a politician. So he wasn't drawing on years of experience of, you know, here's my staff from the senator or his governor or whatever, or here's all these lobbyists that have helped me. Um, and so there was a lot of churn of people trying to figure out, you know, how to work together, whether they wanted to be doing this, are they the right fit for the job that they have? Um, and then, you know, really was this what they wanted to be doing? So, um, but yeah, that's what it was. I heard you say, I forgot which interview, this is a while ago, that your first day in the job, you thought was going to be your last day. Well, you know, I had done a press conference for him on January 5th, 2017 at Trump Tower. And he had sort of allotted me afterwards, like, that was great how you handled it. And I kind of thought, okay, I got it. I know how he wants me to handle this. And like, I got it. And so we went out there that first day. Um, I was like, okay, I think I know what he wants. And honestly, uh, you know, that was a big learning curve lesson for me because what I realized was that like, don't just assume that you know what he wants. Don't, don't, that, that was my, that, you know, the funny thing is there's a lot of people who want to paint that on the president. The reality is, is that I, I was the one who walked out there thinking, okay, I know what he wants. I know I got this. And in that, from that standpoint, that was a mistake in my part because I should have walked back in and said, okay, I think based on the other day, what you want me to do is to say this and act this way. Is that appropriate? And, you know, it so wasn't. You, you know, I, I look at that job, the job that 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 a press secretary, it, it got to be the, the most stressful job in the world because you have to speak to the press and these are all alpha press people who are the best of the best and they're going to try to stump gotcha questions, just bomb, especially President Trump. They wanted to tear him apart from day one. And now you have to go out there, not only defend the positions and articulate the positions, but you have to speak for the president. Any screw up is yours and yours alone. Is, is you feel the weight of that when you get up there, when you got up there each time? Yeah, every day. I will take exception of the, the, the I mean, they're not the best of the best. Um, there are some really good reporters in there, but there's a lot of uh, folks. I have a new book out called Leading America, where this is, you know, I talk about how these guys, their workplace, their training is in journalism school. I think it explains a lot of their behavior. Um, that's the the thing is they're not it used to, I mean, I think part of the problem is, is that for so long, Republicans and Democrats, like there's this little shell game, like we all pretend that, you know, they're, they're important and they're powerful and we'll get along with them. And um, I think what the Trump presidency did was kind of put them in their place a little. They were not happy with that. That's for damn sure. And, and now I'm going to no. ask you, now, now that the genie has come out of the bottle, the way the American public looks at the press. Uh, do you think that's ever, you know, did we just cross over a line or we, like a new reality has, has all of a sudden the sun has finally come up and everyone's seeing that the, the, the press isn't what we thought it was? I think depends on where you sit. Um, I think for people who are center right to right, there's been a, you know, a reality check as to what the press's agenda is. And why, it, I mean, to some degree, I mean, that's why part of the reason I wrote the whole chapter in journalism school was to give people a better understanding of like their agenda. Um, 
but I think if you're on the left, um, you you think, I mean, it's funny, you'll watch, like right now, you'll see some of these folks think that MSNBC doesn't go hard enough or is not pure enough. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, like you're, like they, they think that MSNBC and CNN don't go far enough to the left. Um, and so where you sit on that spectrum politically kind of determines, I think in large part, what you think about the media. But for the conservative, I don't know, the, the, the middle part of this country, which, which voted for Trump in big numbers, I, I, just my humble opinion, I don't think they're ever gonna see the media the way uh, it was in the Walter Cronkite days. I, I think that's over. But you know, the funny thing is, so, so the, the funny part is, you know, I, I, I grew up in that sort of three network, four if you count PBS world. I, I think what we realized, because everyone always harkens back to those days. And I, I think to myself, the deal back then was that they just didn't have any competition and we didn't know anything different. So we're like, oh, okay, well, Peter Jennings and Sam Donaldson and Tom Brokaw have got to be given it to us straight. And they weren't. I mean, those guys are all left, left-leaning left folks. And I think that for the longest time, there was just nothing to compare them to. And so we took it for granted that, oh, well, that's got to be the standard. Um, and I think now we realize, oh, that you know, doesn't just, have to you be mentioned the standard. That. Growing up, uh, I'm a little bit older than you, just by I think about a decade. That I remember uh, in New York Times when we were in high school, and I went to a private school, the Yeshiva, Jewish Day School, and we used to read the op-ed pieces in the New York Times because that was all the news that's fit to print, and they were just horrible. Anthony Lewis, uh, especially, just tearing apart Israel for everything. And there was only one person, William Sapphire, at the time who was ever standing up. Uh, but and then we found that years later, uh, Peter Jennings. You mentioned Peter Jennings. He was having some type of relationship with Hanan Ashwawi of the uh, PLO. And you weren't hearing the news the way it, you thought it was in a pure, unadulterated way. It was really, it was going through the washing machine here. Yeah, but that's, and again, I think I, I so I have another chapter on, on media in the book. Um, and I talk about these relationships. I mean, you bring up Peter Jennings, you think about, I lay out all these folks and their husbands, their wives. I mean, not by, but just explain to people, like you think that somehow you're getting this unbiased, unfiltered thing that there's, there's, you know, I remember back in the day when George Will would go on television and he would always talk about the fact that his wife, Mari, worked mm -hmm. for this campaign or that campaign because he wanted, he wanted to be honest with viewers to let them know that, hey, by the way, I'm going to comment on this candidate. My wife happens to work for us, so take that with a grain of salt, which I always thought was very honest and transparent. But now when you look at some of these journalists and you realize the relationships they have and the things that they cover and what they don't tell you, and you go, wait a second, no wonder you don't bring this up because you know your husband, your wife, whatever, works for that or has you know, five you know, clients. If this was in, in the financial space, markets, uh, the non-disclosure would put these guys in jail. They go out there and there's no disclosure yeah. of what their relationship with either corporations, either business people, or with uh, political parties or with individuals. And you and they use a forum, which still many people feel should be, or maybe in their own mind's eye, they still want to believe that it's somewhat of the truth. And they're coming out to you with a whole bunch of things and you have no idea. Well, you know, it's funny. I get more and more people that call or talk to me now and say, hey, can I ask you this? I saw this story, then I switched the channels and I said, like, what's the real truth on this? And and that's the thing is that they have eroded a sense of truth. I was watching, 
I flip through the channels all the time because you I, I like to see what other people are who they have as guests how they're covering stuff. And I watched a couple segments of Brian Stetler um, this weekend on CNN, and he was asking, he was talking about conservative media, particularly the network that I'm on, Newsmax. And he was asking them about the rise, of, and I'm thinking the guests were Sam Donaldson, Carl Bernstein, and a Democratic strategist. And I'm thinking to myself, so in order to talk about the right, you have three people on the left, like that. It's so. I mean, I, I guess I look at that and I'm like, I don't understand the point of this. You're trying to actually act like you're having an honest discussion, but you're not. And you're not being honest with the viewer. Yeah, no, I, 100%. I, you know, I, and, and I think that with, with uh, President Trump in the past four years, I think that a lot of people see now that the emperors, we, we didn't hear the words fake news. My mother-in-law is now telling me, I, she tells me something and I respond. She goes, no, that's fake news. Fake news was never even used in the, in the general vernacular of people. But now I think people are much more aware of what is real news and what is somewhat fake news. And it's, it seems to be that uh, I think the country, well, let me ask you, do you think the country is better off uh, where we are now? No. Oh, I, I mean, I think the country is in a, I mean, look, we're in a much more polarized, divisive place than we've ever been. Um, so no, but the thing that I find fascinating is when I, you know, there's there's been a plenty of time for reflection for me in terms of people ask me all the time, what did you do well? What didn't you do well? What do you regret? What would you do over? I don't think any of these folks in the media at CNN or MSNBC or whatever ever think that way. They, they look at the world and say, what can everyone else do to change? Because I'm great. And I think that that's, that's the unfortunate part about this is that no one at those news channels actually thinks about how they might be not doing good enough. It's how can the world change to be more like me versus is there something that I'm doing that could be done better? I never, I never thought of it that way, but you watch, you watch those channels you mentioned and it just basically is... It's, it, 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 they're looking at the world in a different way that you sometimes say, I can't believe what they're saying. It's just absolutely amazing how they've taken everything. Uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm a big Trump fan. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. I saw him back in the day. I had friends of mine who did business with him and continue to do business with him and speak very highly of him. And uh, he was one of the first guys that came out. And he was an average, you know, for all his billions, he's an average guy in terms of he's speaking to you without, uh, without, you know, bureaucratic speak. And I just think the media just didn't know what to do with that. It just didn't, it just didn't fit their worldview. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think that's exactly right though, is that they were, I mean, it goes back to what, something I said earlier, which is they were used to being sucked up. They were used to being, you know, I'd love for you to sit down and write a piece on my boss. I'd love for you to come in and meet with them, have private dinner. And, and he blew that all apart. He, he doesn't go to their dinners and he doesn't. And I think that that, and I remember, if the, I think I don't remember exactly. You probably know exact the exact date. It was one of his first conferences, press conference after he became president, and uh, he's looking at CNN in the front. I remember I was watching with my family at the time. We were watching. And he goes, "I'm not. I'm not speaking. You're fake news. You're fake news." And like the whole, everyone in that crowd just went crazy. That was like, whoever had the nerve to say that Mine. to CNN, and he just called him right up. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not right. addressing you. Move on. And he went to the next guy, and the guy still screamed. He went to the next guy. Whoever did that before. Yeah, I know. But that's what I'm saying is that I think he broke the mold. Um, and 
they didn't like it. And so that's, he was rewarded with horrible so, so media. So let me ask you this, man. You had a front row seat to history. Really, this election, the past four years, was 2016, I'm talking about, really changed the way we look at politics, the way we look at the media. The I guess history, it's going to be a matter through the prism of history. We're going to see all the amazing things he did when you knock out all this crap out of the way. It was just absolutely, in terms of the economy, in terms of foreign relations, from the Mideast, uh, in terms of raising American morale, defense, on and on and on. Those are facts. Because right after, uh, by the way, as you probably know, uh, right after uh, Truman left office, he was vilified. He was considered a terrible president. It was only 40 to 50 years later that people realized, historians realized, what this man had to go through and how he changed the course of history. So do you see that playing through with uh, President Trump in, let's say, 10, 20 years from now? You know, that's a fascinating question. Um, George Bush used to always talk about that, that, you know, you know, he'll he'll leave it up to those who write history. I think it depends on where we head, um, because what he has accomplished, especially for those of us on the right, has been astronomical. The the judges alone, the federal judiciary. Um, I think it depends on where we go. So if we start really going far to the left, I think there's going to be a point at which people start reflecting, like, wow, where did we, you know. Remember that day when we used to have, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, in other words, I, I think, yes, we will we will get back to that. And and I think especially because of what he's done on the judiciary, that there will be a reminder of all that he did to, to help steer Even things the in the right East, direction. The career politicians for the past 75 years haven't gotten it right. And in almost a heartbeat with the Abraham's Accord, Abraham Accords, he just, he just turned it all around. And they were saying that just... I don't know what the criticism about it now is. I just don't get it. But, but he did something that no other politician was ever to do. You know, it's funny because he did it, and now we've seen a couple more countries join. And there's obviously the potential, depending on how far it goes, to really bring a lot more people on board. But again, it was all this, there's no way it can happen. Uh, that just, that's not going to, it's not possible. So many of the things that he've done from tax cuts to, to some of the stuff in foreign policy. It was uh, like, well, that's just not how cutting, it's done. Cutting out regulations you mentioned at the beginning. That was just... But but he just, I think that when you don't, when you're not willing to buy into the status quo and you won't take no for an answer, you can get a lot of things done. And that's what he's shown. So, but, you know, it did come at a price. And the price is the polarization of the United States. Oh. Right? It's probably at the worst... Yeah, but, but uh, you're right. But see, here's the thing that I think is fascinating. I, I think it, it's sort of like I always think to myself that, that that so much of what goes on goes back to like lessons that, you know, at least my mom taught me and probably yours as well. Like, you know, just because he jumped off a bridge doesn't mean that you have to just because he's, you know, and it's like when they look at Trump, they act like it, it was like a, a monolithic activity that he was it's like they forget what nancy pelosi said they forget what harry reed said to bush they forget all of these things that they've done and been part of and kind of act like you know he just started this stuff and you know but it's it's i was reading this thing over the over the weekend and in 2016 nancy pelosi talked about how the election was was rigged and trump was illegitimate and it's like when she says stuff like that it's like okay 
when he says stuff like that, it's like, how can someone this undermine our democracy and da, da, da. And you're like, wait a second, when the New York Times writes a story of it about fraud, well, that's legitimate. It should be taken seriously. When the president says it, it's, this is insane. How could he possibly bring this up? The, 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 there is such a lack of context to what is happening. Who starts it? And again, I don't mean to start like going down this path of like, you know, again, you know, it's not like it, trying to figure out who started it is a futile exercise. But the reality is, is that the left never wants to take any kind of uh, responsibility for their role in starting, facilitating, continuing some of these just, you know, words. I mean, they, they use all of the same words and traits and then say, but he started it. Or, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, so, so it's like, you know, going to school and all of a sudden the kid would just keep pushing you, pushing you, pushing, and then you just pop him in the mouth and you're in trouble. Yeah, you're in trouble. You, know you hit him. But you didn't see I, the I, last I, 20 I, minutes. I, he's been bothering me. So I've used your example, that example a million times. It's like someone taps you 18 times and on time 40, you turn around and grab their hand and they go, why'd you just do that? And you're like, it wasn't that one instance. It was the so, 39 So just a quick it. story. One of my sons was in school. He was in sixth grade, fifth, I think it was in fifth grade or whatever it is. And, this, and the principal calls me up. He goes, your son just punched a kid in the mouth and Mr. Mizrahi, we do not condone any type of violence. I said, look. I got you, but my kid doesn't do this, you know, out of, out of no context. Tell me what happened. I don't know this. I so close. Spoke to my son that night. He goes, Dad, this kid did not stop bothering me all day. He was making fun of me. He was pushing me. So I clocked him. I said, good. And I, I dealt with it. He goes, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. You take things out of context and now put it. And I think that's, just draw this back here. I think through that, the whole Trump presidency and Republicans in general, this crap has only gone one way. It has never been a two-way street. They can say and yell and scream and do whatever they'd like, and it's either buried or excused away. And on the other side says something that is not even as damaging. It's like, oh, my gosh, the dignity of the office, the president. It just goes out, snowball out of control. Right. And and it's so, you know, like I said, it's, it's fascinating how one-sided all of this discussion is. There's never a... Um, a recognition of the, and I think part of that, and again, this is all in the book that I wrote, but basically it's because the media is part of the left. They're an appendage of the left. And so they're not going to rat out their own. So, so we are probably as polarized, if, if, well, I wouldn't say as, as much as, but pretty close to where it was during the civil war, where the country is really split among lines. From your view of history, where, where yeah, do you see this going, man? How, how does this, how does this change? I, I wish I had an answer for you because what you see now with like the Biden team is they run around, they go unity, unity, unity. But at the same time, they're saying unity. They're like basically punching you in the face. And that's, you know, that's the problem that I have is that they want to be able to say all the nice words and then go, well, we called for unity. And, and it's going back to the example I use. You can't call for unity as you're you know, basically punching them. So do you, how do you see this ending? How do you see the next four years, the next eight years? How do you see this? How, how do you see this, you know, just being smoothed over somewhat? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a, that's an interesting question because I think that there's so many questions about what gets, I mean, look, there's a difference between somebody really trying to bring people together um, and willing to say, 
I get that. Like right now, if you think about like a um, like where the left is, you've got Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Ilman Elon uh, Omar basically saying, you know, we just didn't go far enough left, and a lot of folks in the Democratic Party saying it was too far. So, um, so I, I don't know because the problem is, is that for a lot of those folks, they they truly believe that things just haven't gone far enough to the left. Do you think they're going to be more? Do you think they'll That's, be marginalized over the next several years? Because look, Congress shifted. Uh, there was a what, 20 plus seat swing between Democrats to now Republicans. And after spending, I don't know how many billions of dollars and the supposed blue wave that have it, it, Pelosi and Schumer just aren't the people they were prior to the election. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll see. But I think the funny thing is they're both getting pulled further to the left, not towards the center. You're a centrist Democrat. Are you starting to say, my gosh, I almost lost my job here because of this progressive movement? Uh, are you starting? Yeah, although I, I don't know that there's, I think that there, that's a term that gets batted around. I don't know how true it is, meaning that I think a lot of these Democrats like to say they're centrist because it sounds good. But when you look at what they vote for, it's really not that centrist. Um, but um, but I don't think that they care. I mean, I don't think the folks on the far left care. Their they, their their view is is that you know if only you guys just went a little bit further, you'd see the light. Dangerous. What's something we you you had a front row seat, man? You saw the president on a daily basis. You intimate quarters, uh, um, in, off the record discussions. What doesn't the Ameri What don't the American public know about this man that you do? Um. I mean, I, I think the two things that I would point to are one, on a professional, from a professional standpoint, there's this narrative that like the president doesn't listen, he doesn't care, whatever. That's just, he literally loves watching people battle it out in front of him. Um, not, I mean, but but in terms of ideas and, and policy, it's like he wants to see the two best people kind of go at it, hash out those arguments, so that he hears the pro and con in real time. You know, you say this, yeah, but you're saying that that that'll undermine this and this will cost that. So I, I think that the the irony is is that I always believe that the person who loses the argument is the one that like leaks out the fact that he's not listening. It's it's like he listened, you just lost. The other thing on a more personal basis is that you know the president can be um, very empathetic. Um, I've watched him do it personally. And privately to other people in need, but he really, I think, I always got the sense that he doesn't think that it plays well into his persona. But like, if he knows that somebody's in a tough place or whatever, he will, you know, he'll call them, he'll donate some money to them or whatever. But he, he just kind of does not. He, he does it quite often and doesn't ever really want the the recognition and it's not the recognition so much it's just like I, again i think part of it is he's never really thought it played into the persona i know right after i remember reading right after the election or right leading up to the election the 20 hours he was up in campaigns going from this place to that place at amazing this is a guy who just got over covid which is absolutely staggering running across the country flying everywhere giving one speech after another and then he stayed up late into the night when those hostages uh, came home and he gr he greeted them at the airport right at the airfield where, yeah, I read it. Where, where, was that? Yeah. where was that in the press? Uh, hmm. Oh, yeah, of course, because they were already in bed. 
Yeah, it's. But that's how it works. And it's a good story, so it got squashed. So what's the next chapter in Sean Spicer's life? Well, you know, like I said, I got a, a new book out called Leading America. It's available uh, both on Amazon, well, bookstores, to the extent that people go there right now. Um, and then my website, seanspicer.com. Uh, and then I've got a nightly show on Newsmax every night at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 o'clock Pacific, um, where we sit down and have conversations with some of the you know biggest names inside politics every day about what's happening and you know, I think the thing that's different is that we're a very um, fun, sort of informative show. We're not looking to bite someone's head off. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had a real fun ride so, so far. So last question for you. This is totally for the, everyone who knows you as Sean Spicer, Dancing with the Stars. I know that was the first chapter of your book. I did read your book. I have it right over here in my, my bookcase over here. You put that as the first chapter of your book. Why? Um, I think for two reasons. One is because I think it's the most relevant thing that people that happened to me. I mean, like in since I left the White House, the first book that I wrote called The Briefing talks about all that. Um, the second thing is, is I really think that it explains a lot that's going on in culture. Um, it's not just, you know, if you've read the chapter, you know that it's it's kind of it's like there there were you know, the, the entire show was was about how Sean polarizing the team and da, 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 and it was like you know, you've got to be kidding me. I'm the only one not talking politics on the show. And, uh, and yet that's all that everyone wanted to talk about. It was just fascinating because there's a line in the chapter where I wrote like, although the press loves to bemoan the lack of civility, they're the biggest drivers of it because everyone on the show kept getting asked like, Oh, how, how divisive is Sean? When I was reading the part where you were in, uh, in New York, I think in the, uh, they called all of the uh, contestants to New York. You're sitting there. You have no, you're getting along yeah. well with everyone. And you have no idea what's coming with the tweets that are coming from the from the host, and you are totally bamboozled here. Yeah, well, I mean, it was just funny because, um, you know, the the, ho the one of the hosts at the time, Tom Bergeron, tweeted out that you know he had hoped to keep this and free of politics and all this stuff. And I thought to myself, really, because you didn't seem to think that was the case with all these other folks, and not to mention the fact that like Tom didn't disclose the fact that he has given a lot of money to Democrats that he had tweeted extensively. I mean, he, he had personal history, um, about me, um, which he, you know, it's just, he, he wasn't upfront about it. He, I think he misled folks. Um, and also, you know, I, as I said at the time, the whole beauty of it was to actually do something that wasn't political was in nature. Thing. It was a fun, um, nice thing. Great show. Yeah. It was a fun thing. Right. And so that was the goal of it. And yet, he was and the one making did, it political. You, by your own account, you don't dance well. You just basically said, "I, I can't." You went yeah. on that. I would. I don't know. I don't know how many billions of dollars they'd have to give me to go on that show. To look. I, I just don't know how the hell you do that. How much time does that take to learn the dance moves? Uh, you practice at least four yeah. hours a day. So those results were after practicing four hours a day. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You should see where we see. well there is there's video of it starting. It's well, very difficult. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. So last question for you, Sean. You bring up a great point. The media doesn't show all of their connect connections. They don't disclose. They don't are you gonna do that on your show? Like when you have a guest on, are you gonna basically ask a guest to disclose or put some side of this not disclaimer, but show some type of relationship? Well, I mean it depends. The the answer is is that I think it's more upfront. If we know somebody has something. Um, but what I was more referring to, though, is that when you look at some of these hosts um, and you know that their wife or their 
spouse um, has represents people um, that it's important, I think, to say, hey, by the way, I mean, it's sort of like if I owned a billion dollars in Pfizer stock and I was going to have a big discussion about um, about Pfizer and the and the vaccine, I think it would be important to say, by the way, just so you guys know, you know, I mean, I think there's a difference. I don't. But I mean, imagine if you owned, you know, 10 shares or something. But I think if I sat on the board of Pfizer or if I used to work there, it would be important to say, by the way, just as a reminder, you know, I used to work at Pfizer. Are you, are you going to pull those out on the show? Or whatever. Meaning if I'm on, I'm on your show, for example, and my wife happens to be, a, she's not, a lobbyist for uh, ExxonMobil, and we're talking about energy. Would that be something that you feel as a, as a journalist? Uh, a, a, now you're in a really important capacity now. Well, you're being listened to in a big way. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I'm not a journalist. I, I host a talk show that's political, and I'm very honest about. I mean, here's the difference, though. See, this is where I think there is a difference. I I tell people all the time, I'm not a journalist. I support President Trump. Here's my political leanings. I will tell people on the show all the time when we're covering a subject, I'll say, listen, here's what I think about this. Da, 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 da. I'm very open about my opinion. I don't want you to think as a viewer that I'm, you know, are you going to vet a guest? So the answer is it's hard to know. So I don't, you know, if I, if I have somebody on, I don't go do the personal research, say, by the way, I understand your wife used to, you know, or your kid works for it's, but would I want them to disclose it? Sure. Would I, would I, if I had a guest on and I found out that they came on and didn't disclose something, um, it would, that would, it would depend on the situation and this, I mean, there's, it's, it's not as cut and dry, but I think there's a difference. If we're covering something, I think it's different if the host is covering something. That's the bigger point that I've been getting at in the book. Because if I'm asking you questions and yet you know that I have a relationship on the side or the, my family does or my wife does, and I'm not disclosing that, then that's going to have a big impact on potentially the questions Agreed. that I ask, the way I look at it. I think it's incumbent upon a guest maybe – um, depending on the subject that's covered and what I the tell relationship you, just is. Just as an aside, I think if you do that as a host, if there's any type, you know, like in the financial markets, for example, you have to disclose everything, any type of relationship you might have. Uh, because even even uh, some sites that, uh, that have, um, where you put your stock recommendation on, you have to go through a whole bunch of checklists of, I, have, I do not own the stock, I do not work for the company, I do not everything, yes or no. So you see if it's a biased or unbiased opinion about the recommendation. I think that'll be light years ahead from where everyone else is if you would do something like that as a host. If you ever get into a situation where it's close to the baseline, you know, call it out and just go right to the middle and just say, here's my, here's my political, not political leanings, business leanings, connections. I think that just adds just another layer of uh, what's something they're not doing. Okay. Just, just, uh, just FYI. I think, <laughs> I think of it because, look, man, you sound like an honest guy. You sound like a guy who's really his heart's in the right place, and you've been through, you've been through the mill. You had to stand up there and get abused. <laughs> you know that was your job, and and uh, and it was a tough job, and you did it with grace. And and when you left, you you know you didn't try to tell all of how sucky life was. You, uh, which I which I commend you for. You went right out there and just said no. It's not. And I think with uh, President Trump, you actually. Uh, spoke to him about going on Dancing for the Stars. Is that correct? Do I remember that right? Yeah. Yep. That's a that's a yeah. big deal. Not many folks would do that. You know, not many. No, you, you didn't have any relationship. <laughs> no, it was I, over. I think that might have been the first time anybody had a conversation with the President of the United States about going on and he told, and he, a dancing just show. Told, you know, just tell my viewers what, you to, what he told you. 
Well, they had asked me twice initially when I left and I said, you know, he's, he, there's reports and I said, um, um, and he, he said, you know, I'm not really sure that's the right time for you. And I said, I think you're right. So I didn't go on in 2017. I've been asked to go on and I didn't go on until you still have a relationship with him. Really? Yeah, I talked to him the other day. And, and, nope. uh, going forward, going forward, last, well, I already asked the last question, the last, last, last question. Any chance you'll be coming back into the White House, into any realm, in a future administration? You're done with that? Oh, no, no, no. Never? Never. I can say that with almost certainty, unless it was some sort of a short-term kind of help why, out for why is a that? couple days. Why, I mean, like, why is that? No. Because I, I, I've done I mean, I did it. I was there. I, it's hard to go back after you've done it, um, both in terms of just personally, mentally, uh, financially, and then uh, just in terms of my family. How was so your family now, during all this when you were sorry. Going, when you were working for the president? How how difficult? It was a it was a very stressful uh, situation for the time that I was there, and actually for quite a bit afterwards. But it's gotten to be quite nice all right. now. All right, Sean, man, thank you so much. Uh, really great stuff. Keep fighting the good fight. Best of luck with your book, uh, Leading America. I know I saw it on Amazon. It was moving up in the rankings when I looked at it a few weeks ago. A quick read. By the way, you wrote the whole book, and there was no ghostwriter here, right? Uh, I have Editors, an editor. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it, it reads me. very well. It reads. Yeah. It's a quick read. It's really a very quick read. It is it's funny. It's both of my books. I think that's just because how I how I. You think. No, it's, it's straightforward. <laughs> it's not. You know, you pick up the story and you go right through it. I sat down and you know. Well, it's personal. And the thing is, is that part of this is I want it to be relatable, and that was the goal: is to not have some esoteric thing. I mean, the goal is to basically say this is what's. Like if it's relatable because it's my experience. This is what it's like on college campuses because I've been on a bunch of them in the last two and a half years. I can tell you what's going on. It's not, you know, here's what's going on in the media because this is who I deal with. I mean, so I I think the, the whole point of the book is to explain to you in common everyday experiences that I'm having what's going on in our yeah, society. Yeah, well, you did a great job, man. Really great job. Sean, thanks Thank so much for being much. on the show. Best of luck to you. Keep fighting the good fight. I will. You too. Thank you. If you love the show or disagree with it, shoot us feedback. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. This is Charles Mizrahi for The Charles Mizrahi Show. Thanks for listening.